EU Confidential will get started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Europe aims to provide sustainable, affordable and secure energy for its citizens and industries. We in Equinor believe our energy sources and solutions will contribute to the carbon-neutral Europe of the future. I cannot find any justification for what I was treated in the European treaties. So I have to conclude that it happened because I am a woman. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. And you'll hear more about the ongoing tension between her and European Council President Charles Michel in just a moment. But this week's podcast has a decidedly Scottish accent, even more than usual. The second part is devoted to next week's Scottish Parliament election, where the Scottish National Party is on course for victory, standing on a platform of independence followed by EU membership. Of course, it's not as simple as that may sound, but we'll take a virtual tour of my hometown to explore the huge shift in Scottish politics that's taken place in recent years. And you'll hear from an expert who's thinking ahead to how an independent Scotland could join the EU. If you think about the divorce negotiations with the UK, then the EU is actually going to have to get, I think, a little bit involved with that. Normally, obviously, it would stand back from such constitutional disputes. But that's going to slightly or more than slightly impact on the trade and cooperation agreement, not least the fisheries. But first, let's stay in Brussels to check in with our podcast panel. So a warm welcome to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. To Chief Brussels Correspondent David Herzenhorn in Brussels. Hi, David. Hi there. And also joining us, our recovery fund expert, Paula Tama. Hi, Paula. Hello. And so, Paula, we have invited you in because this is a big week in the uh, coronavirus recovery fund in terms of the different countries handing in their plans to the European Union, their national recovery plans. Can you just give us a, a quick update of, of where all of this stands and how, how it works? What are these national recovery plans and what happens once they've been handed into the European Commission? So exactly as you said, on Friday, there is a soft deadline for countries to hand in their recovery plans, which are their blueprints for expenditure of the 750 billion EU recovery fund, which was agreed last year by EU leaders in the summer. So we have seen the plans of Italy, of Spain, of France and Germany, and the Commission expects around 10 or so to still land this week. And what the countries have to do in these recovery plans is basically follow quite a number of requirements that were set out in hotly debated negotiations uh, last year, including on what they should spend the money on. So there is an expenditure target for climate-related investment or 37%, digital investment or 20%. And then another big chunk of their plans is what do they plan to do in terms of structural reforms? EU leaders agreed unanimously last year to say, okay, for the first time in history, we're going to take up billions in joint debt and joint liability. But with one big condition is that everybody is going to try and address some of those structural issues which are holding back EU cohesion and EU integration. Okay, so what happens when those countries hand in their plans? Once the 
countries handing this plan to Brussels, the Commission has about two months, which are starting to tick when the countries submit their plans, to assess them and make a funding proposal to the Council, where also other countries have a say. So every plan, every country needs the backing of a majority of EU countries to get their plan approved and to see the first fund of money. Okay, so this is the start of a process where, as you say, it's partly about how you're going to spend the money, but it's also partly about what you're going to do to reform your economy in ways that the EU, to use that kind of overarching term, thinks will be kind of good for your economy. Where do you see the kind of battle lines here? Is the Commission going to play hardball with the money here? Or are individual countries going to say, no country, why you're not getting the money because we don't think you're serious about these reforms, you know, go back and do more homework? So that's exactly the phase that we're approaching now. Basically, we have seen in the lead up to the submissions, there has been a lot of exchange between EU capitals and the Commission on these draft plans. Uh, What we're seeing now are heavily worked on versions uh, of plans that the Commission has contributed to drafting also. But uh, once the countries will submit, the Commission will have to do an assessment of them and basically stick to what was agreed uh, in the negotiations. So you will have to play hardball in some cases in terms of why did you not address the pension reform? Why did you not address fiscal reform that we have been requesting to you for years, basically? So it's the first time that Brussels has some teeth to its request for reform, because obviously it can also decide to suspend or even halt altogether the payments of this fund if it esteems that the country is not following through its agreed reform path. And we have seen in some cases, for instance, in France and Germany jointly presented their recovery plans, and the German recovery plan does not include anything on pension or tax reform, which were the two key asks from Brussels in 2019. So there might be some jostling over there. Okay, well, that will be interesting to see, because as we as we know in the past, sometimes France has... Um, been treated quite leniently because, as Jean-Claude Juncker said, it's France. So we'll be interested to see if Germany gets the same treatment because it's Germany. David, do you have any sense, is there any chatter around town about where the tension might be over the recovery fund? Well, we, we have a good idea of where the tension might be. And Paul is giving a very, uh, a very elegant description of what this recovery uh, mechanism is designed to do. But in fact, underlying it is a lot of politics and a lot of emotion. I mean, if we wind back the clock to last July when they were approving this budget and recovery package, you remember uh, Mark Rutte, Prime Minister of the Netherlands and others, very much against this idea of joint debt, very uncomfortable with that. And the way that they were persuaded, the so-called frugals, to go along here was, in fact, that they would essentially put their taxpayers on the hook for the debt going to uh, fund programs in other countries, but in return, finally get some movement on what's known in the in the EU jargon as European semester, these guidelines and recommendations that are made year after year after year by Brussels, and that then go ignored in the capitals. So you've got these um, really emotional underlying tensions, for example, between, say, The Hague and Rome, looking toward countries like Greece, which has made a lot of progress on the reform front coming out of the last financial crisis, or Portugal, you know, these these north-south tensions that have long existed. I mean, what's being asked of some of these countries is just not easy. And I do think you'll see some leaders feel compelled to step in and make some noise if they think that uh, the countries are not living up to uh, their obligations. Right. I imagine we will see a bit of uh, theatre over this, uh, at the very least. Uh, Reem, I know that, uh, you know, I, I imagine it was important for France, again, to show some symmetry here by, again, standing side by side with Germany and presenting its plan. 
Was that almost the most important thing about the presentation this week? You know, as, as the saying goes, politics is perception. And here they clearly went for the perception of, uni of a united front. I think just two things that are playing and going to play out uh, domestically in France. Let's not forget that we are a year away from the presidential election. Um, and the EU is getting a lot of flack now, much more than it was a couple of months ago, for being um, inadequate in handling the pandemic. But as Paula was saying, And as David was just saying, part of the conditions for having access to all this money is that your recovery plan uh, has to be approved basically by the others in Europe. And that is going to, I think, bring up very interesting issues of sovereignty that are at the heart of Uh, the political debate in France always when it comes to the far right. That's one thing. The other thing that is already part of the conversation right now is that uh, everyone is seeing that the U.S., has already put in place its recovery plan, that the Biden administration came in guns blazing with billions and trillions of dollars immediately ready to be pumped into uh, the US economy, whereas the EU recovery fund is actually going to be dispersed a bit later than was first promised. Right. And it is very hard, of course, to compare the two. Uh, as we know, the American system is different also in terms of the kind of social safety net that exists uh, in, in a lot of Europe that doesn't exist in the US. But as you say, again, it's about perception, right? And if the US is seen to be moving forward, economy opening up, and uh, Europe is seen to be lagging, it's obviously not a good look. Paula, we're going to let you uh, run and get on with other things. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, let's just come on um, finally to talk about the kind of the story that won't die. You know, it became known as Sofagate, this seating incident in Ankara involving the Turkish president and European Commission president Ursula von der Leyen and European Council president Charles Michel. But it seems to have come to symbolize a lot more than that, particularly the difficult relations between von der Leyen and Michel. David, you've been looking into this this week. What have you discovered in your reporting about how they're getting along? And, and how others feel about that. Well, there's quite a lot of tension between the two of them. And, and let's first catch people up on this dramatic moment that happened on Monday in the plenary of the European Parliament. They had gone there ostensibly to talk about this very controversial visit to Ankara. Uh, Michel spoke first and again expressed his regrets that von der Leyen ended up sitting on this sofa, not having a chair that, that would make her look equal to Michel and uh, the Turkish president Erdogan. And in fact, then von der Leyen came to the lectern and just let out a bombshell where she finally outright accused sexism and said, it happened because I'm a woman. I cannot find any justification for what I was treated in the European treaties. So I have to conclude that it happened because I am a woman. And, you know, that has kept this story alive in many ways, uh, brought it right back to the fore where many people in the EU had hoped it would it would fade into the background because it has not been the EU's finest hour to see these two presidents sort of at each other and quite dramatic with um, very different reactions and not always the, the predictable ones. Uh, you know, some women very um, encouraged, believing that von der Leyen had to take that opportunity because there has been so much sexism in politics and diplomacy for so long that it would have just been a missed opportunity for her not to come out and sort of say, look, you know, there has to be fair and equal treatment for women. Others accusing her of opportunism, of sort of 
pointing to, to sexism at a moment that was really more about protocol and, in, and even failures on the part of her own team, which we know that there were. Now, this tension between Michelle and von der Leyen goes back quite a ways, almost to the start of their uh, mandates uh, in December of 2019. Von der Leyen quickly went to Africa to announce and, and proclaim that she's leading a geopolitical commission. Within a month or so, you saw Michel making his own visits to Africa, uh, the two of them going to Berlin uh, for a conference on uh, Libya and how to resolve uh, the conflict in Libya, along with the EU's foreign policy chief. So this overlapping has been going on for quite some time between the two of them. Lots of underlying tension over who is perhaps the real president of Europe. Of course, some would say that either Merkel or Macron would, would claim that role. But uh, this is also a long-running interinstitutional rivalry. And some diplomats have been upset at this, say, look, we're used to this sort of stuff, but hey, you got to keep it under control. Yeah. Reem, what do you make of it? Listen, this is, I was honestly very uncomfortable with what I heard from uh, von der Leyen, both as a woman uh, and also someone who worked in diplomacy before. So when I was younger, I was 25 years old, I worked in diplomacy at the UN Security Council, and even though I was nowhere near uh, as important as Ursula von der Leyen is today, I always managed to uh, get a seat, even in closed-door meetings that were, I can tell you, full of men much older than me. And it was because my team had made sure on the protocol side that I was accounted for and that my seat was reserved. And that is what it comes down to. Diplomacy is an extremely codified universe. There are codes... Uh, there are things that are supposed to happen. That is why everyone has a chief of protocol. And uh, this just seemed like a bit of a cop-out uh, to just cry out uh, sexism. And it's unfortunate because clearly, as David said, there is a real problem in, of sexism in diplomacy and in politics. There is no question about that. But it doesn't serve the cause of women to cry out sexism when the reality is that it was more about uh, the staff not doing their job properly. Right. Well, that was at least part of the story. And I think one of, this, one of the really interesting things about this story is that people see it very, very differently. But I think the overarching image, if you like, is just this image of these two presidents not in sync, not even able to go to the European Parliament together with a kind of agreed joint story where, you know, Charles Michel can say, I I've apologised. Ursula von der Leyen can say, I was outraged and apoplectic, but I have accepted that apology and we move on. Uh, David, why do you think they can't just bury the hatchet, which is what any kind of political advisor would surely tell them to do? It, it does seem that, that they're trying to bury the hatchet in each other's heads. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there is a there is this again this this continuing interinstitutional tension right and and that's not a small thing i mean first of all you have michel who faces a much quicker reelection uh framework he's got a two and a half year mandate he's now more than halfway through that obviously now growing concern on his part that he could face uh, some trouble in being re-upped for a second term i mean one thing that we are hearing is some people believe this is a price that the european council is now paying for having selected a relatively weak leadership slight. Von der Leyen is the first president in 25 years who is not a head of state and government in her own right. In many ways, she's very much still in the shadow of, of Merkel, her mentor. Uh, Michel was prime minister of Belgium, but not a particularly strong or, or notable prime minister at that point. And so by keeping power for the capitals in a way, they've created a situation where they have leaders who are jockeying for prominence, who want to build their own reputations, as opposed to folks who have been there, done that, and are in Brussels kind of to increase the prominence of the EU. 
but a lot of diplomats tell, telling them, hey, knock it off, guys. It's just been too much. Yeah, and I suppose possibly, as you say, it was perhaps something about the, the status which the two of them enjoyed uh, previously not being the highest. Perhaps that breeds a certain insecurity, which makes it more difficult to brush off incidents like this if you're you know, perhaps uh, feeling like you really need to prove yourself in, in some way. But the great thing about EU Confidential, we do it by Zoom. Everybody gets a seat equal status. And uh, we'll leave it on that happy note. David, Reem, thanks very much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. And coming up, we're heading to Scotland ahead of the parliamentary election next week. For those of you who aren't experts in Scottish politics, we promise it will be informative and entertaining, maybe with a wee bit of Scottish humour and free shortbread for every listener. A message from Equinor. As Europe greens its economy, we in Equinor are ready to support ambitious targets. Partnering with European industry for large-scale decarbonisation in hard-to-abate sectors by means of clean and low-carbon hydrogen is one of our answers to the European energy transition. Our H2H Solten project in the UK that is planned to produce hydrogen at scale can play a leading role in the UK's journey to net zero by 2050, renew the UK's largest industrial cluster, and unlock technology that will put the UK at the forefront of a global hydrogen economy. We in Equinor hope continental Europe will follow the UK with the same determination. The small Scottish town of Lanark has a few claims to fame. It's where Braveheart William Wallace started his campaign against English rule. I have dispatched a hundred soldiers to Lanark. They will be returning now. What are they dressed like this? Actually, it was more like 50. Make it click. It's the name of a famous novel. Lark. It's been celebrated in song. It borders the orchards of Lanark so fair meanders through meadows... And it also happens to be my hometown, the place where I grew up. Those were simpler days. No internet, no social media, a couple of local newspapers, one local radio station. In Glasgow and the central Scotland, we are on your side. You know you've always got a friend in Radio Clyde. And one dominant political party, Labour. It was enormous. It was kind of part of the fabric of the community. It was just an integral part of your identity in much the same way when you're growing up in Scotland, your football team will be an integral part of your identity. It was akin to that. This is Andrew Hilland, who stood twice as the Labour candidate to be the MP for Lanark in the UK House of Commons. One of the earliest memories I have was about politics was in the 1997 election. I remember a van driving past my house with Things Can Only Get Better, the anthem of Labour's 1997 campaign when Tony Blair first won. It was kind of blaring out the speakers. And you don't really have any associations of there being much more political divisions back then. It was just everybody in the, the area was supportive of Labour. 
When I was growing up in Lanark, Labour called the shots in local politics, regional politics and Scottish politics, especially in the central belt. That swathe of Scotland that stretches from west to east takes in Glasgow and Edinburgh and is where most people live. In that 1997 general election, for example, Labour won 56 of the 72 Scottish seats in the UK Parliament. And Labour held the UK parliamentary constituency containing Lanark continuously for more than 55 years, starting in 1959. And when the Scottish Parliament was re-established under a UK Labour government, Labour won the seat for Lanark there too, and it kept winning that seat. But then, in 2011, this happened. And I declare that Aileen Campbell is duly elected to serve as the member of the Scottish Parliament for the Clydesdale constituency. Thank you. And so that is the successful SNP candidate in Clydesdale, Aileen Campbell. And the change, SNP up 16%, Labour down 2%, and the Conservatives down 5%. And, that's an eight- and four years later, the UK Parliament seat went to the SNP as well. Well, the tectonic plates of Scottish politics have clearly shifted what we're seeing, I think, is a, a historic shift in Scottish political opinion. In the space of a few years, the SNP ended decades of local Labour dominance. It still holds both the UK and Scottish Parliament seats, and it now controls the local council as well. It's a similar picture across Scotland. The SNP holds a large majority of the Scottish seats in the UK Parliament, and it's dominant in the Scottish Parliament. It runs the Scottish Government and it's on track to retain power in another landslide victory in next week's Scottish Parliament election. It's almost certain to have way more MSPs, members of the Scottish Parliament, than any other party. It would be a major surprise if it didn't retain the constituency that includes Lanark too. My name's Maddie McCallan. I am a former lawyer, um, former special advisor to the First Minister, and I'm the SNP's candidate in Clydesdale for the upcoming election. Mary's from the town of Bigger, about 12 miles from Lanark. To say she's been politically interested from a young age may be something of an understatement. I actually recall when I was in Bigger Primary School, Karen Gillen was the Labour MSP, and she came along and I... My teachers, you know, recalled to my parents, I put my hand up and I said, Miss Gillen, do you think that devolution to the Scottish Parliament will lead to independence for Scotland? And I think she, What age were you at this time? About eight or nine. I mean, it was <laughs> ridiculous. Now, Andrew Hilland and Mary McAllen don't agree on the big issue that's come to dominate Scottish politics, whether the country should become independent. I think the, the problem is that there's always a ceiling to what you can achieve, both with regards to the powers that are already devolved, but equally with those that remain reserved. And some of them have been have had a huge impact in recent years. For example, 
us leaving the EU wasn't something that we could control. Defence is an issue. We we still have the UK's nuclear weapons in our shores in Scotland. That's not something that we support. There's nothing we can do about it. The economic, macroeconomic powers that rest at UK level, you just simply can't build the country that we want to be. The SNP tell us that they want to leave the UK to join the European Union, right? But Scotland has three and a half to four times more trade with the United Kingdom than with Europe. So when the SNP decried the barriers to trade that were being erected as a result of Brexit, those would be so much worse if Scotland were to go independent from England. I think the other thing is the United Kingdom is not just an economic union, it's a social union. And that essentially means that today Scotland gets more than it puts in when it comes to funding public services, which helps sustain the NHS, helps sustain pensions, which helps pay for Scottish schools. And I think that these are aspects of the debate that are often overlooked when the SNP says Scotland's been dragged out of Europe against her will. I, of course, favour Scotland staying both in the UK and the EU, but I don't think the answer to being pulled out of, of the EU is to is to do the same with the UK, <laughs> to be frank. But they do have a bit in common. They grew up locally, they're both lawyers, and they'd both be left of centre on the traditional political spectrum. Mary McAllen's profile as a campaigner on human rights and social justice might once have seemed like natural Labour candidate material, but that was never a consideration for her. One thing I was always very conscious of, and I don't know why, it was the democratic deficit. It was the idea of why is this how we feel in Scotland? And yet this is the governance that is going on across the rest of the UK. And I found my home in the SNP there because they offered a solution to that as far as I could see. So, yeah, no doubt that Labour and SNP have sort of cohabited some of the same political grounds. But that was the defining difference for me. And Mary McAllen and Andrew Hillen's analysis of why Labour lost its grip in Lanark and all across Scotland and why the SNP rose to prominence overlaps quite a bit. I think at that earlier stage, it was probably about complacency on the the part of Labour. And I I don't want to be ultra critical, but there was there was a sense that, you know, they were counting the Labour vote, weighing the Labour vote, sorry. And that creeping complacency did start to make a difference. I think there are three things. I think the first is a shift that happened across many European countries is the deindustrialization, you know, that happened in Britain in the 70s and it was accelerated by the Thatcher government through the 80s, where for a lot of communities, including those in Lanarkshire, their relationship with the Labour Party was through uh, heavy industry. It was through the mines and it was through some of the class institutions that were attached to those, like trade unions. I think the second development is the advent of devolution in the 90s. So the Labour government in 1997 created the Scottish Parliament, which for the first time uh, brought legislative devolution to Scotland. And the SNP proved itself to be seen as a competent government within the Scottish Parliament being elected in in the mid 2000s. And I think the third factor is the kind of seismic shift that occurred in Scotland in 2014 with the Scottish independence referendum. Both Andrew and Mary used that same word, seismic, to describe that referendum. 
I was in Lanark a few weeks before the vote in 2014 when independent supporters held an annual march to commemorate William Wallace. And there was no shortage of opinions to be found on both sides of the argument. Let us with pride and passion stand and raise the flags for Scotland! When we get the yes vote in four weeks' time, what you'll suddenly find over the coming years is that even people that voted no will tell themselves, actually, I voted yes. But I don't think it's safe for Scotland at all to be independent. Why would you vote no? Because we're better together. In, in what way? In every way. We're guardians of Scottish values. Let's ban bombs and look after bills. Let's get rid of food banks and actually look after our people. to get out and get people voting yes and let's bring Wallace's spirit home and bring that referendum home. Freedom! That referendum cracked open fault lines that hadn't been so pronounced before but now dominate Scottish politics. The pro-UK side won the referendum with 55% of the vote but it was the losing side that was energised and galvanised despite its defeat. The SNP took support for independence to new heights and held on to people who'd come round to that view. These days, polls show the two camps are neck and neck. Next week's election is about much more than independence. A range of parties are standing in Lanark and elsewhere, campaigning on issues from childcare to climate change. And even if pro-independence parties win an absolute majority, they'll have their work cut out to get Boris Johnson to allow another independence referendum or to find a way round him. But that huge shift in Scottish politics means Andrew Hilland may have to wait a while yet if he wants to be the Labour MP for Lanark. It was always my dream growing up to represent my hometown in Parliament, so I'd never rule it out, but I'm not throwing my hat in the ring in the meantime. While Mary McCallan a former advisor to Nicola Sturgeon, looks to be on the political fast track. I think you feel pressure regardless. You you just want to do everything you possibly can, and I think they are. Mm. So I'll be happy with whatever happens on Thursday next week. Now let's talk to Kirsty Hughes, director of the Scottish Centre on European Relations, an independent think tank. I caught up with her earlier this week when she'd taken advantage of the easing of coronavirus restrictions to escape to a boffy, a wee cottage in the Highlands. As we've said, there would be many hoops to jump through before Scotland could hold another referendum, become independent and apply to join the EU. That scenario may never come to pass, but it is the policy of the party that's on course to win next week's election. So I started by asking Kirsty Hughes how things would play out if an independent Scotland asked for EU membership. I think it would be unique because Scotland, like the rest of the UK, has has been in the EU for 47 years until we left a year ago. Okay, it was in as a sub-state, not a state. So... I think there's quite a lot of thought being given to this already by the Scottish government, though it's not put a lot of that thinking into the public domain. 
Nicola Sturgeon has talked about potentially a referendum in 2023. And then she said, and then we might be independent in 2026. So that's not actually that far off. And if you think about the divorce negotiations with the UK, then the EU is actually going to have to get, I think, a little bit involved with that. Normally, obviously, it would stand back from such constitutional disputes. But that's going to slightly or more than slightly impact on the trade and cooperation agreement, not least the fisheries side of it. So whereas you might expect the EU would say, we can't deal with Scotland at all till it's an independent state, that might actually not be the case. And what are the advantages and disadvantages that Scotland would have from this unique status of having been part of an EU member before? So in some ways, of course, already having a lot of legislation, which I presume would be you know, compatible with EU membership to an extent, the aki, if you like, the broader idea of being you know, in tune with the EU. But on the other hand, being a brand new country uh, you know, and not having some of the institutions that you would expect a country to have and to have had for a long time. I think that's right. And it's interesting that there's relatively little discussion in Scotland of that institutional side of things. It was there in 2014 at the last independence referendum. But now you'll find the discussion here is more about how quickly or how slowly would Scotland rejoin. But actually, the fact that Scotland will be assessed like any other candidate country for the state of its democracy, the state of its economy. And in many ways, that looks quite positive. But yes, it's going to have to have a central bank, a foreign office. It's going to have to presumably have a second chamber of parliament and a whole host of regulatory bodies and laws that that may apply at UK level rather than at Scottish level. And then, of course, the question is, if it was in 2026, for instance, this application, it's, it's only five years away, but how much might Scotland and the rest of the UK have diverged in EU regulation by then and how long will it take to come back? So, I think at one level, could be quite optimistic and say, goodness, this is maybe going to be the fastest since Finland and Sweden and Austria joined because they were already EFTA countries and compatible with the single market. But the new state is not, it's not something the EU has not come across before. So in a way, I think both the EU as well as the UN would be in a position to help Scotland, irrespective of its actual application for membership. Right. And I imagine with those institutions, I would think, would have to be up and running for a while for them to be assessed, right? Well, it does depend on the detail, doesn't it? But if if Scotland applies on sort of three months into being an independent country, maybe within nine months, the EU says it can start talks, and then those talks take two to three years, maybe there would be a first assessment at the beginning of the central bank and then a a check at the end of the talks that it hadn't all collapsed or been corrupt or been ineffective or whatever whatever the problem might be. So I'm not sure that that would necessarily mean you have to take extra time unless there were real doubts about the state of the new state of Scotland. Mm. So and you think it could go as quickly as, as two to three years, a complete accession process? Well, again, it does depend on how far we might have diverged in terms of the full body of the acquis, but but compared to almost all other candidate accession stories apart from the Eftons, we, we would potentially be remarkably close. So that part of it could go quickly, and that's a big part of it. But if the EU still has the same deficit rules as now, then there is a big debate about, well, how big might Scotland's deficit be? How much of the UK's debt might it inherit. But 
if something like that can be managed, then yes, I think if we're not talking about 2035, but more like 2025 or six or seven, then I think you could imagine negotiations might be as short as a couple of years. Mm. You said that there's actually some some work being done behind the scenes already with, with the Scottish government. Do you have any sense of how kind of advanced that is, how much thinking they've done about all of this? It's not a secret that the Scottish government has people who are working on the fallout from Brexit or on the process of accession. And I think what they don't want to do is at some point finally come out and say, this is how we see it. It's all right. You know, I'm an independent think tanker. I can say how I see it. But if they come out and say how they see it, they'll doubtless get criticized by the Tories and Labour. But they don't want someone in Brussels to suddenly get up and say, oh, that's absolutely ridiculous. Of course, you can't do it that way. So I think there is a lot of discussion behind the scenes. Do you know if there's anyone, have you ever come across any any sign that people within any of the EU institutions are thinking about this? I think people have thought about it a, a little bit. Even outside the EU, the UK is obviously a big neighbour of the EU. And the idea that a historic state like the UK might fragment means people are watching that. But I don't know that they're watching in exactly the same level of detail as some of the debates in Scotland. So I think people are thinking about that politics of independence and UK fragmentation more than about the process of accession. On And on the other hand, if you're talking, I was talking to people for a paper in, in the autumn about how they saw the UK and Scotland and potential independence in the EU. And some of the uh, Nordic states, what somebody said to me, oh, well, but, you know, Scotland will almost be a six Nordic state, and that could be quite good in balancing out, you know, the, the enlargement to the Western Balkans. So that's a rather different question to someone looking at the nuts and bolts of accession, but people sort of fast forwarding to the political dynamics and whether they're to their benefit or, or not. Mm. Is there any part of this debate that you think isn't getting enough attention at the moment, particularly in Scotland, I guess? I think it's not in general that much discussed. I would like to see it more discussed. It's very much talked about in rather headline terms. And at one level, that that's fine. There isn't a very sophisticated or maybe any discussion of what sort of member state would Scotland be? What are the trade-offs? How do you behave? Look at the different sort of shifting alliances in the EU. Where would Scotland be situated on the on the climate group or on the free markets group or free trade group or EU foreign policy or the future of Europe. I think there's really rather little discussion of that, although I have to say a year ago, the Scottish government did bring out a, a glossy European strategy document. So it wasn't in great depth, but I thought that was actually an important step forward. There's also very little discussion, although it's just come up in the last few days in the election campaign, there's been very little discussion of the border issue. Because, of course, it's not identical to Brexit, but there's a big chunk of it that's similar. So you put an EU external border between Scotland and England for the moment on the basis of the trade and cooperation agreement. Then you reopen your border to the EU. But there are trade-offs and costs and benefits to that. And at the moment, Scotland trades a lot more with the rest of the UK than it does with the EU. So you have to, I think you have to make the wider case about the pros and cons and costs and benefits, the economic costs and benefits of independence. There is also the the more detailed question of the currency, because at the moment, the Scottish government's policy is that we use the pound sterling without agreement of the Bank of England. Now, how would the EU handle that if Scotland was applying to join the EU while still using 
the currency of a third member state, one that perhaps it's not even getting on with very well. And certainly it couldn't say, Scotland couldn't say at that point it had control over its own monetary policy. But I think people are much more keen in Scotland in, in the end to talk about independence as the big issue. I guess when we get closer to a referendum, these issues would be more discussed. Mm. Well, uh, my guess is we'll be talking about this uh, quite a lot for uh, quite a few years. But for now, let's leave it there. Kirsty, thanks very much. Thank you. And if all of that has whetted your appetite for more on the issue of Scottish independence, check out the latest episode of our Westminster Insider podcast hosted by Jack Blanchard. We'll include a link to that in our show notes. And that's all the time we have on this special edition of EU Confidential. We hope you enjoyed it and the free shortbread for every listener. You can always send us feedback or ideas directly. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>